the National Archives podcast series, Inconvenient People and How to Find Them, Tales from the Victorian Lunacy Panics, presented by Sarah Wise. So, my book, Inconvenient People, features around a dozen main case histories of people who found themselves declared insane in highly questionable circumstances, plus a larger number of more briefly covered victims of lunacy conspiracy. Now, mental health is a distressing and contentious subject, but while not shying away from that aspect, what I've presented are stories ultimately of triumph. These are the people who fought back against their conspirators and won. And the idea for the book struck me very suddenly when I went to the Old Vic Theatre in the summer of 2007 to see a not very good production of Gaslight. That's the 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton, but it's set in Pimlico in 1870, which features a Victorian husband attempting to make his highly strung but perfectly sane wife go over the edge, have a breakdown, so that he can get her certified and start a new life with all of her money, his mistress, and some stolen rubies that he believes are secreted somewhere in the fabric of the marital home. He needs her off the scene completely so he can start to take it apart brick by brick. And during the performance, I say, oh, it didn't particularly engage me, so I did that classic thing of turning around and looking at the audience. And I thought they seemed perfectly decent, ordinary, normal sort of people. How come nobody's had to come on at the start and explain to them any historical background to it, that this is how the plot was going to work and there weren't any program notes to that effect either and then I thought further I thought how was it when I was a child seven eight nine some of you might remember BBC two in the 1970s used to do fantastic double bills of the black and white Hollywood movies back to back you'd shut the sun out in your living room and just disappear into the 30s and 40s one of my favorites was Gaslight here with Ingrid Bergman and um, dastardly but absolutely yummy Charles Boyer trying to make her go mad. Nobody had to sit me down as a child and say, well, this is how the plot's going to work. This is how a husband can pull this off. And so they are sitting there in the dark in the theatre. That's when I wondered, what was the mechanism by which an unloved Victorian spouse was declared mad, even though they weren't mad? How often did it actually happen? And did it ever happen to men? And it only took me a few days of digging around in the archives, not least here, before I realised that, in fact, in the first 60 years of the 19th century, um, for a start, husbands, fathers, sons were every bit as likely, and possibly more likely, to be put away sane into an asylum. For the simple reason, which when you think about it is blindingly obvious, but I hadn't thought about it, men were more likely to have money. The majority of malicious incarceration cases were a grab for control of cash and of uh, an estate. Males inherited more often and they inherited significantly larger sums. And when a Victorian woman married, her husband automatically gained control of all her money. That's unless she'd been able to get a sort of the equivalent of a prenup done. It was called a marriage settlement where she's entitled to keep a certain amount of her own money for her own private use. 
So larger-than-life Victorians, particularly those with substantial money, property or a business, could find themselves being portrayed to the authorities as dangerously wayward eccentrics, suicidal melancholics, sexual deviants or hopeless dipsomaniacs by those who were keen to grab an inheritance or to gain control of family dynastic finances. However, towards the end of the century, certain women seized the issue of false incarceration and they successfully bundled it up with the emerging feminist movement. And later on, I'll go on to talk a little bit more about that particular aspect. Just to set the scene a little, the basic rules for certification of a lunatic in the Victorian era remain the same right the way through to 1890. Firstly, an individual who had noted or who claimed that they had noted a bizarre change in the usual behaviour of a family member, spouse, close friend or business associate would approach a medical man. Now this could be a GP or it could even be someone with the lesser qualification of apothecary because no specialist psychiatric training was required for the diagnosis of insanity. That medical man would need to alert a second physician or apothecary and each of the two men then had separately to interview the alleged lunatic and come to their own separate conclusions as to whether any insanity had in fact been exhibited during the interview. If both men, and it was always men in the 19th century, found that the patient was indeed of unsound mind, that's a rather loose terminology that would go on to cause all sorts of problems in the law courts, they would then sign certificates of lunacy, which together with a written lunacy statement made out by the individual who'd first alerted them to the patient, formed the legal justification for the incarceration of a lunatic into some form of custodial care. Now usually this meant the asylum, but many people, the wealthy in particular, opted instead to keep the patient at home with or without a specialist nurse or keeper. Now the most famous cultural figure we have of a home-based lunatic was poor old Bertha Mason in Jane Eyre, kept away in the attic in Thornfield Hall. Now there was a governmental body whose duties included ensuring that no sane person could ever remain in an asylum. As soon as a patient was received into an institution, copies of their lunacy certificates and the lunacy statement were sent to the commissioners in lunacy. They were headquartered close to Whitehall and they felt that they were able to spot any suspicious circumstances or statements in the documentation. However, each of the case studies in my book had reason to believe that the commissioners were either incompetent or were seeing the issue of lunacy through the eyes of the doctors and the asylum proprietors and not the patients. Just as today concern is being voiced about the Care Quality Commission's failure to identify and deal effectively with abuse and poor care in healthcare institutions, so the Victorian commissioners in lunacy were slammed in their day for dealing with, and I'm quoting here, easy platitudes, soothing generalisations and gratifying averages. They were nothing more than an ambulatory sham, according to one critic. And I've worked my way through most of the commissioner's surviving minute books next door 
in the reading room. And these reveal that dubious certificates and badly kept medical case books for patients did lead to the summonsing of certain doctors and asylum proprietors to Whitehall to explain themselves. Nevertheless, only verbal reprimands and threats of license removal tended to follow these often very heated discussions. And the modern researcher is left with the impression the Victorian overwork and diligence was combining fatally with complacency and naivety. The job was done very thoroughly by the commissioners, but the job itself appears to have been rubber stamping, glossing over, and just hoping that everything would go away and write itself. As for the doctors themselves, what we see in each of the stories in Inconvenient People is that any scientific attempt to define and promote normality of behaviour failed spectacularly every time it was tested. Because far from presenting a united and authoritative front, what I stumbled upon in my research was a world of psychiatry that was divided and conflicted, with the occasionally bitter disputes taking place in the full glare of public and journalistic scorn. Whenever disputed lunacy cases made it to the courts or to chancery lunacy inquisitions for wealthy patients, the public would flock to these hearings and give loud support to the alleged lunatic. And you often see this even in the case of evidence that's pretty overwhelming that this person is quite psychologically troubled. And sometimes the public would even attempt a physical rescue of the accused. Distrust of the mad doctors ran very deep among the general public. Now there were indeed certain bogeymen mad doctors, inflexible, wrong-headed and simply financially corrupt in certain cases. But for the most part, they struck me as really quite a humble breed. We are in the infancy of our knowledge, one of the most eminent mad doctors wrote in 1828. And throughout the century, you come across these similarly agonised expressions of the likelihood that it's going to be posterity, i.e. our own glorious age, that's going to be able to explain satisfactorily the mystery of madness. There simply was no monolithic psychiatric establishment eager to claim, for example, that most women were mentally unstable. Though, as we're going to go on to see, that's not to say that a certain amount of gendering of mental illness didn't go on. It certainly did. So for this afternoon, I'm just going to cover two of the common contemporary theories about insanity as they played out in some of the stories of the successfully contested asylum incarceration. One of the most important of these was the concept of monomania. And in its most basic meaning, this is the theory that a person can appear to be fully sane, except with regard to one single notion, a fixed idea from which that person cannot be shifted, even though it is demonstrably delusional. Some people believe that the concept of monomania encompassed what was termed emotional insanity, and for that reason, they lumped what we today are calling depression into the monomania category because with clinical depression, the reasoning faculties still work well and there's no delusion. Others thought that monomania also covered what they called moral insanity, which I think is closest to what we today are talking about when we talk about personality disorder, where the most appalling behaviour and really nasty crimes can be committed, but the sufferer 
can't be said to be lacking either in intelligence or in reasoning skills. Now, monomania was always a very controversial theory, and it really wasn't helped that it had orig originated in France. A lot of practical English people said, well, it's obvious fancy foreign nonsense. And many juries at lunacy hearings would throw out such cases, refusing to believe that only one part of the mind could be diseased with the rest functioning normally. Monomania was also a very unsettling phenomenon. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of people resisted it, because it suggested that insanity could be lurking within the most normal seeming of people. If you accepted the monomania theory that insanity didn't require bizarre behaviour and permanent multiple delusions, then didn't that mean that anyone that you were walking past in the street could be dangerously insane but without any symptoms? Or that somebody you'd known for years might be harbouring a hidden self but that you'd never guess it from ordinary, everyday interaction with them? The first case history in my book is that of Edward Davis, a brilliant and highly eccentric, very highly strung young businessman in the City of London who in 1829 was placed in a small private asylum, the Clapham Retreat, by his mother, who was keen to take full control of the running of the business, plus all the enormous sums that Edward had in the bank. Edward had been physically and behaviourally unusual since childhood. He was very gangly, he had a stutter, a very oblique sense of humour, and total self-confidence in his business abilities, and just this very odd and ironic way of looking at the world. The two doctors who his mother found to certify him took these lifelong oddities to be evidence of mental disease and argued that the fact that even though he was able to carry on running his profit-making tea, tea business from the asylum, he was nevertheless suffering from monomania. And that's why his strong intellectual and business talents were completely unaffected. And this caused a near riot in the packed room when his lunacy hearing eventually took place. Many of the boys that Edward had been at school with, along with a number of clerks in his counting house, um, who'd known him since adolescence, they came along to say that all these odd traits of his had been present for years and they hadn't changed at all. So why was his mother suddenly declaring him to be of unsound mind and therefore not fit to run his business? Could it be, they wondered, anything to do with the fact that he just announced his intention to get married and he'd also just announced his intention to make his first will. The newspapers also sneered at the doctors who put forward this monomania theory, and the jury rejected it as nonsense, that's the word they used. Edward was freed, and his conniving mother was burnt in effigy by his supporters. Now, the Times newspaper's editorial on the Davis verdict stated that the melancholy fact is that your thoroughgoing mad doctor takes it for granted that hardly anyone is sane. It is the law of England that any one of us may be seized by a pair of ruffians under the warrant of a mad doctor and plunged for life into that hopeless prison which is calculated to unsettle the steadiest intellect. And the newspaper here is expressing the commonly held fear that if you do place a sane person into an insane asylum, it's not going to be very long before that person does in fact start to exhibit plausible symptoms of mental illness. And I think that's how quite a lot of the plots that I cover in the book were working. So the second notion about insanity that crops up repeatedly, and I'm sorry to be really sexist here, fellas, it's repeatedly used about 
male lunatics or male suspected lunatics is dipsomania, also known as drink mania. Lawrence Ruck was a wealthy Montgomeryshire farmer married to Mary Ann Ruck and they together had six children. You can see them here on the top step over on the right. There's Lawrence and there's Mary Ann gazing at each other lovingly, which is quite odd really because um, Mr Ruck had always enjoyed a convivial drink uh, but in the spring of 1856, friends and locals noticed a swift deterioration in his behaviour. One night after a dinner party at the home of his friend, Mr Thurston, the two men had retired from the other guests, as gentlemen did, to have a smoke in the drawing room, where Mr Ruck downed a large brandy, yowled like a beast, and kicked Mr Thurston hard in the stomach. He rushed out onto the lawn, where, with all the dining room guests up at the windows, he committed an act of indecency before disappearing into the night. I can't tell you what that was because any of you who work quite a lot in 19th century in particular archives know that one of the things you're up against is euphemism. They draw a nice linguistic veil over things. You think, what do you mean? What are you saying? So you can picture what you want, what Mr. Ruck's <laughs> doing, and I know what I'm seeing. Um, not for publication. <laughs> um, one day he locked himself into his drawing room and on the carpet he constructed a bonfire of all his clothing and set light to it. Servants were at the door trying to hammer in to stop it. Servants were very hard for the rucks to keep. Uh, Mr Ruck would walk around the house at night in his nightshirt with a candle wandering in and out of everybody's rooms, not saying or doing anything, just sort of servants would wake up screaming in the night at the sight of him looming over them in his nightshirt. <laughs> Um, poor old Mrs Ruck had the worst of it though. He'd drive out into the countryside at three, four, five in the morning and she'd often have to go out into the woods and fields to coax him home. Much, much worse were his increasing accusations that she had been unfaithful to him. Um, accusing her, here comes some more euphemism, of the grossest improprieties in the most coarse and disgusting language. But Mrs Ruck was able eventually to have Lawrence certified insane through drink. And he was committed to Moorcroft House Asylum near Uxbridge. That's still there. It's scrubbed up very nicely as private housing. And during the ensuing legal furore, six months later, Lawrence attempted to have his certification overturned. A number of the most eminent psychiatrists came along to give their opinion about the role of drink in the nation's mental health. Dr. Harrington Tuke told the jury that mania from drink was the second most easily curable form of insanity. He placed it after puerperal mania, postnatal mania. That's still with us, sadly. But he thought those two were the most easy to crack if you got them early enough. Tuke and certain other specialists writing in these years estimated that perhaps as many as one-fifth of certified male lunatics had had their insanity brought on by drink. And while many delirium tremens cases got out of the asylum quickly, other men would spend years going in and out of asylum care. And that's both in the private and the public systems. They'd regain a sound mind when they were inside but then they'd return to inebriation upon their release. Seven other high-profile doctors testified that Lawrence Rucks had been a case of drinking mania and that his delusions wouldn't recur just so long as he didn't drink. And on that advice, Mr Ruck was declared sane and released from Moorcroft House. And against all the odds, the Rucks went on to live reasonably happily together into a very long 
old age, which is when this photo was taken. And something that surprised me when I was researching the book, really hadn't expected to find this, was the fact that women in the 19th century felt able to make use of the lunacy laws as a way of removing from their homes a drunken and violent or drunken and extremely uncongenial husband. It was cheaper and less humiliating than a trip to the magistrate for a judicial separation <coughs> or, after 1857, a trip to the divorce court for the real thing. Bear in mind, if you were to take either of those options, it's a public hearing, plus you've got the newspaper reporters from all the nationals sitting there taking down details of your dirty linen. The cases of John Gould, Arthur Noel, Arthur Legend Pierce and Richard Hall, which I touch on in the book, all appear to have had this subtext with sympathetic doctors helping a wife to make the family home safe from a thuggish husband. Because even though this was unquestionably a male-dominated and male-centric society, there were nevertheless plenty of men, particularly if they had an evangelical or otherwise anti-drink agenda, who deplored male violence and wished to ensure that the English home was a safe and happy place for wives and children. This was an era in which men, every bit as much as women in the so-called respectable classes, had to behave according to fairly inflexible rules of decorum. And a man's inability to fill his domestic role as a loving husband and a respect-inspiring father could contribute heavily to an accusation of unsoundness of mind. Now, some of you might be wondering by now, a quarter of an hour in, why I haven't mentioned one of the most infamous categories of wrongly incarcerated people, young women who gave birth to an illegitimate child. I think many of us have in our family trees a female ancestor who was put away for getting pregnant. But in fact, this phenomenon belonged largely to the 20th century, not to the 19th. And the confusion has come about because of two things mainly, I think. Firstly, the idea that the Victorians were any more likely to be morally offended by unmarried motherhood than people in the first half of the 20th century. And secondly, the fact that the Victorian asylum as a physical construct continued to be used right the way through to the 1980s. Between 1845 and 1860, there was a huge national program of public asylum construction. And the designers of these complexes, I think if we could sit them down here and interview them, I think most of them would say that what they'd been seeking to create was a humanitarian place for the mentally troubled. And what we see today as terrifying, gloomy, forbidding places were likely to have been, in the architects' minds, sumptuous, spacious, and orderly buildings in which the best care for insane paupers could be given. I could have called up any. There's, there's still many of the county asylums still standing. Um, many of them are now you know, have been converted into housing. There's some fantastic websites with great contemporary pictures of Victorian asylums that are still standing. And it's also worth remembering that these county asylums were paid for out of the public purse. And that's an extraordinary outlay for the 19th century, the era of small state, laissez-faire, etc. 100 years ahead of the creation of the NHS, 
free at point of use hospitals for mental illness came into being, while those working people who were suffering from a physical illness still had to rely on a ramshackle collection of charitable or poor law institutions in order to obtain treatment. Now, with regard to illegitimate children, it was, the, it was the local parish, as I'm sure all of you know, in the 19th century that was responsible for welfare payments to the poor, a significant proportion of whom were unmarried mothers and their offspring. Payments to them from public money were hugely resented, and the workhouse was the most punitive but also the cheapest form of welfare for single mothers. The county lunatic asylum, by contrast, was an expensive place for the parish to lodge someone, even when, from the late 1860s, the parish started to get more help from central government for these costs. No parish welcomed the expense of placing a pauper in the asylum if he or she could be placed in a workhouse or kept in their own home on what was called outdoor relief payments. And for that reason alone, the Victorians didn't wholesale place single mothers in lunatic asylums. It was simply too expensive an option. In fact, it was the 1913 Mental Deficiency Act that saw the start of the institutionalisation of unmarried mothers, along with other types of supposed juvenile delinquents, on the grounds that they were, and I'm going to have to use a really horrible phrase now because it is the accurate historical phrase, moral defectives. The fear was that if you allowed such persons to breed, they would overwhelm the non-defective British population. It's a folk myth that the Victorians put into lunatic asylums the sexually wayward. Instead, it was the doctors and administrators of the 20th century who were misusing the institutions of the former age. However, that's not to say that perceived sexual misdemeanours or unsound attitudes to sex didn't contribute heavily to a lunacy conspiracy for Victorian people, men as well as women. In 1825, Lord Portsmouth was found insane and unable to manage his wealth, which was considerable, um, because the jury at his lunacy hearing heard of how he was forced to share a bed with his wife and her lover, and that the latter would beat him with a whip for Lady Portsmouth's enjoyment. At around the same time, Reverend Edward Frank, a reasonably well-off vicar in the West Riding of Yorkshire, was deemed insane because he permitted his wife to live openly in a nearby house with her long-term lover, a local doctor. And this toleration of a wife's unfaithfulness was considered a strong indicator that both reverends had lost their wits. Um, Reverend Frank was far from being the only man of God uh, to find his sanity being questioned. It happens quite a lot to vicars. Um, they do crop up fairly frequently in the records. Reverend Kennard, perfectly sane, was abducted on the orders of his family, including his grown-up children, on the morning of his wedding to Governess Miss Bade. The Reverend was in his 60s, very wealthy, and obviously once he married, those in his family who'd hoped to inherit once he kicked the bucket, um, now saw with his marriage their potential funds being diverted out of the family as a, as a result of this very unexpected late marriage. He was kidnapped by agents of the family, taken to a lodging house in Hunter Street, King's Cross, and two compliant doctors were in the process of being summoned, but the plotters hadn't sort of done their homework and they hadn't checked his pocket. They were full of cash, and he was able to bribe the sort of man that they'd left on the door 
go on, if I give you these notes, will you let me out? So he, he manages to make his escape via the bribed keeper, rushes off to the church in Woodford in Essex, and marries his bride one day late. Like many of the stories, it, it does have a really happy ending. In fact, he, he chose not to pursue. The police said, look, we've got to get these people prosecuted. And he said, no, it's family. We'll just leave it at that. I, I prefer not to prosecute. So I'm just going to digress now for a short while to highlight a few of the ways in which the National Archives was an extremely useful resource for inconvenient people and to mention a few of the shelf marks or references that I made use of. If any of you have got any specific questions you can either ask me later or, or email me if you're, if you're working in this area and you, you, you've got any sort of queries. First of all, I must admit that a lot of the time while I was doing the research here I was acutely aware that I was trespassing on human misery and contravening the huge desire for secrecy on the part of the families of the genuinely ill. I'm sure many of you will have had that feeling in whatever field you're researching here that you've got free access to material that that person may have wished to have had, you know, kept hidden. With lunacy matters, we're obviously covering a very distressing condition. So the first thing I did was I set myself the task of reading through the whole run of the Commissioners in Lunacy's minute books at MH50-1. They start at one in 1845 and carry on throughout the century. Large ledgers, many, not all frustratingly, but many of them are actually alphabetically indexed at the back. So you can quite easily trace individual patients, individual cases, asylums, both county asylums and private asylums. And they were absolutely invaluable as they allowed me to sort of follow the decisions about individuals being made cases of escape and recapture, also cases involving the questioning of the behaviour of asylum proprietors and doctors, but they also, by total immersion in them over a period of well, longer than I care to say, they just give you a strong sense of what, issue, what issues the commissioners focused on, what types of decisions they made and why, and just their whole general working culture and their outlook on the subject much more tantalising was the private committee book MH50 forward slash 41 so it's part of that run the private committee was set up under the Madhouse Act of 1828 then it was abolished by an Act of Parliament in 1832 then it was reinstated in 1845 which is when this opens and then it just it peters out after just a few pages unlike all the other books in that run it was a highly controversial area of lunacy administration as it dealt with the affairs of the nation's elite lunatics or elite alleged lunatics. So that's the aristocracy and the landed gentry who were either being cared for in the family home or in a doctor's premises as a so-called single patient. Only Lord Shaftesbury himself, Shaftesbury's the head of the Lunacy Commission, the Home Secretary, the Lord Chancellor and just two of the lunacy commissioners, one medical and one legal, were permitted to peruse this list of single patients and the details of their cases. That's how exclusive it was. The commissioners were already pledged to secrecy and discretion in their work, and this private register, private committee, brought an even sort of more occult aspect to their job, and it gives you an extra frisson when you open its pages. 
The private committee also meant a huge additional workload for the already overstretched commissioners in lunacy. And it soon became clear that the arrangement just did not work. There simply weren't enough staff at the commission. And single patients were scattered all over the country, making the statutory annual visits to them very difficult. And besides, there was huge underreporting of home-based lunatics. The three commissioners could not do the duty, and it was extremely awkward to have secrets within secrets, Lord Shaftesbury explained later. The furtive nature of the register had come about expressly to allay fears among the governing classes of public exposure of their private tragedies. And it had, in fact, been passed as a sop to the House of Lords, which had repeatedly rejected lunacy legislation that contained a clause requiring the inspection of single patients. Two of the century's biggest names in psychological medicine, Alexander Sutherland and Alexander Morrison, routinely failed to register their many single patients with the commissioners and abusive attendants who were blacklisted at public asylums were often employed to guard these single wealthy patients. And you see drugging, bleeding, head shaving, and other sort of barbaric practices that were supposed to have been stamped out within asylums still going on against rich single patients, many of whom have been confined just on the say-so of parents or relatives who, for instance, asked Alexander Morrison, and I quote, to straighten out their wayward children. Dr. James Crichton Brown was one of the three Lord Chancellor's visitors in lunacy much later in the century, in 1877. He inspected the 336 chancery lunatics in single care that he knew of. And among the cruelties he uncovered were a woman tied to a chair by a rope, another one shut in a darkened room for three months, he witnessed wealthy patients being brought into asylums from home care uh, with broken bones, the marks of flogging upon them, covered in bruises, and some, sometimes delivered in ropes and in straight waistcoats. That's their name for a straitjacket. Crichton Brown believed that greed and neglect were much more likely to pass undetected in a private home, even within a family, than in an asylum. Um, an expensive single patient lodging overseen by one of the top doctors ought to have been the best lunacy care that money could buy but it seems that abuses in this sector went on completely in defiance of how it was supposed to work so when you compare this ledger which i say is very thin and the full and informative run of the rest of the mh50s it's one more example of how the wealthy were every bit as vulnerable as the poor, both in terms of questionable incarceration and the opportunities for physical abuse and neglect. Now, the National Archives online catalogue was a terrific way for me to get a lot of my research underway. I was looking specifically for problematical or contested lunacy incarcerations, and so I just typed in long lists of such words as malicious incarceration, lunacy, allegation, lunacy inquisition, escapes, chancery lunatic, and so on. And in that way, I was able to find my way reasonably quickly to various Home Office correspondence from the 19th century at HO45, with petitions and letters and reports on particular individuals. And these were extremely helpful, but of course, the handwriting isn't always 
easy to read in the 1820s, 30s, 40s and 50s. HO44 is an early run of private asylum admissions registers from the late 1820s to the early 1830s and they were very good for tracing individuals and also the sort of, sort of not very well known of small private asylums in London and the surrounding area of London. MH51 is the correspondence of the commissioners in lunacy, which is very well kept, although it does have to be said that the bulk of it is about rather tedious admin rather than individual people or, or, or issues. MH94 slash one onwards is patients admission registers 1846 to 1966. Again, very good for names and places, not so great if you're looking for a lot of detailed narrative background. Uh, and another disappointment was C211, that's the um, Chancery Lunacy paperwork. Names, places, dates, but absolutely nothing narrative to take you any further. So they're only really good for a sort of check on sort of like data that you kind of al already know. And also disappointing was the Lord Chancellor's Office papers post-1880 with regard to lunatics. Most of the documentation appears to have been destroyed and again, it's simply bold numbers, dry administrative papers and sort of drafts of acts and bills that never actually got passed. So that's just a very quick look at how I made use of this place while I was researching the book. And now I'll go back to the fight for freedom. I mentioned earlier that lunacy became a feminist issue in the second half of the 19th century. And one of the reasons I think that in the 20th century we began to assume that husbands locked up wives and daughters. That's certainly what Patrick Hamilton assumed when he, he sat down to write Gaslight. Um, is it that it's the women's stories that have endured, and today they're giving us a rather skewed view of the subject. Also, in fiction, we've got the very powerful and enduring tales of such as Laura Fairley's plight in Wilkie Collins's The Woman in White, together with that deeply unsettling notion of Mrs Rochester, though genuinely ill, locked away seemingly at the whim of her husband in the attic at Thornfield Hall. He had a very good reason for doing that, but we don't really get that. We think something's gone very wrong here. From the late 1850s, you start to see the coming together of articulate critics of the various legal and social measures that constricted female freedom the property laws that deemed a wife's money to be under the control of her husband, a husband's total control over his wife's body, that's both sexually and in the form of habeas corpus, which required a wife to remain in her husband's home unless persistent and extreme violence could be proven. The English wife had no separate legal identity from her husband and so was unable to mount a civil case or to enter into any type of contract. Marriage entirely changed a female's status in the eyes of the law. And the image of the wrongly certified wife was, I think, all of a piece with all the other restrictions placed on Victorian wives. The first of the major women's lunacy conspiracy stories is that of Rosina Bulwer-Lytton. Um, Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton was one of the wealthiest and best known men in England, hugely successful novelist and playwright, MP and statesman, man of fashion, uh, inheritor of Nebworth House. In 1827, he married beautiful and viciously witty Rosina Wheeler. But within five years, his promiscuity and violence 
caused the couple to separate. Infuriated by his meagre and late alimony payments, Rosina embarked on a series of hilarious public uh, humiliations for Sir Edward. She was a genius of the comedy put-down, and her dialogue is absolutely brilliant. In response, Sir Edward lent upon his two very good friends at the Lunacy Commission itself, Lord Shaftesbury, chairman, and John Forster, who we see here. John Forster, known to us these days as Dickens's first biographer and Dickens's best friend. He was the secretary to the commissioners in lunacy. These men whose very job it was to ensure that no sane person ever ended up in an asylum conspired to see that Rosina was silenced for good in a luxurious asylum in Brentford, Middlesex. The ensuing public furore gripped the nation and threatened several illustrious careers. Thankfully, their extensive correspondence between each other, cooking up the plot, it's at Hartford uh, local record office, that never made it into the public realm. The Lytton saga became known as the worst marriage in England. And following Lady Lytton's release, the following letter was sent to the newspapers entitled, From a Happy Wife Who Pities a Persecuted One. And it's a rallying cry that reads, My proposal is that women should for once show their esprit de corps, in which they are usually so lamentably deficient, as to countenance and even admire the very men who trample on all social and family duties, and enter into a penny subscription throughout the length and breadth of England in order to enable Lady Bulwer-Lytton to obtain legal redress for the false imprisonment of the very worst sort. Let no pennies be levied on the labouring classes, neither let us ask aid from the higher classes, who look on and smile at fashionable delinquencies, but let the middle-class women unite and show a sense of their sister's wrongs. So I just think the very fact that a paper would publish this in full really shows that something's on the move here. An agitation for full property and civil law rights for married women was well underway by this time, despite persistent blocking of such moves by our old friends, the House of Lords. The Commons would, pay, uh, would pass quite progressive legislation and it all stops dead the minute it gets to the Lords. Ten years after the Lytton saga, we get the case of Louisa Lowe, a vicar's wife who became a spiritualist, and her automatic writing starts to spell out messages from beyond that her husband was an adulterer, a multiple adulterer, beyond even named names, and she went knocking on doors saying, you're having an affair with my husband. He gets her put away very quickly into Brislington House Asylum near Bristol, but she did eventually win her freedom. And in 1873, she founded the Lunacy Law Reform Association. And in her inaugural speech, she addressed her inability to mount a civil case against her wrongdoers because she was a married woman. Furthermore, she said, Women were more afraid of scandal, and so they were less likely to publicise such a wrongdoing when they were released from certification. But in fact, the cases subsequently brought to the attention of Mrs Lowe and the LLRA didn't suggest a gender bias in the problem of doubtful certification. The ratio was 14 males to 10 females. And one of the women who turned to Mrs Lowe for help was the extraordinary Georgina Weldon. When in 1878 Mr. Weldon found her antics too embarrassing and her requests for alimony too high, even though she's the one that had brought all the money to the marriage, he attempted to have her shut in Brandenburg House Asylum 
an asylum for women that was on the river at Hammersmith, no longer there. Following an unseemly chase throughout her Bloomsbury mansion involving asylum staff, policemen, servants and well-wishers, Mrs Weldon escaped into Tavistock Square. Um, she hires a carriage and trots away to Mrs Lowe's house just around the corner. She went on to mount 17 lawsuits against the parties involved. Um, acting as her own solicitor and barrister, which was absolutely unheard of for a woman. And the reason she was able to do this was the passing of the 1882 Married Women's Property Act, which uh, now also permitted a wife to institute civil proceedings in her own name. She didn't have to conjoin with her husband to do that. Um, when she was in court, the street outside would be absolutely filled with well-wishers, cheering her on, throwing flowers, um, as she was entering and leaving the building. And her trials were absolutely the best shows in town. Public gallery was so packed out, queues every morning. Even Alfred Lord Tennyson himself had to elbow his way to get a seat in the public gallery. So in this way, Mrs Weldon won over the public, the newspapers, the judges, uh, parliamentarians, and eventually the House of Lords, who in 1890 passed the Lunacy Act following the brouhaha that she caused. This act, by no means perfect, it did bring the figure of the magistrates into lunacy certification and so ended forever the exclusive power of doctors to decide on sanity and insanity. Some 17,000 people rallied to Mrs Weldon's cause in Hyde Park and she became the most famous figure of the day. She was a superstar in the fight against all sorts of fin de siècle social injustices. She paid sandwich board men emblazoned with the word body snatcher to parade outside the home of the doctor who'd arranged to put her into Brandenburg House. She hitched a flight with a cloud photographer called Mr Small on his ascent from Hastings in a hot air balloon so that she can scatter leaflets about her case across the entire south coast. And I'm wondering whether in Kind Hearts and Coronets, whether that's where they got the idea for Aunt Agatha, the suffragist, scattering leaflets all over London and then shot down. So on that rather more cheerful note, I'll come to an end, and if you've got any queries, I'll try and answer any questions that you might have. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 29th of May, 2014, at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved. Thank you.